Welcome to the pod. Welcome, welcome, guys, to another episode of Two Chassids in a Pod. Ruch Hashem, we have with us here Rudy Israel. Ruch Hashem came all the way to Tzfat to spend some time here and uh, to sit down with us. Thank you very much and Chodesh uh, Tov. Welcome, welcome. Chodesh Tov, one of my favorite cities with one of my favorite people. Wow, Ruch Hashem. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure most people know who you are, uh, most of our followers for sure. And if you don't, then. Uh, in short, Rudy is uh, very active online and in and in physical locations throughout the world, spreading the love of Am Yisrael and 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 Eretz Yisrael and the land of Israel, and um, really trying to put people together. I, I guess that's the main thing: is conversation over everything, um, and the recognition and the the chizuk to to give towards Jews. And uh, first things first, personally, as a friend from way back. It's amazing to see how much you've grown and what you're doing across the world and what an impact you have. And uh want to go a little bit deeper. Let's so, go deeper. That's why we're in Tzfat. Chaim, Chaim, Chodesh Tov. Very exciting. So, why don't we go back to high school? Back to high school. <laughs> Michael Krupp. Michael Krupp. In Miami. Uh, public school, 4,000 students. Very ghetto. Uh, Trayvon Martin went to our school. Um, there were like three fights a day, at least, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, it was uh, quite an experience. I went to Jewish day school before that school, and uh, going from that sort of Jewish cocoon to the real world was definitely an important experience. And even there, I think me and you were one of the two individual Jews that really kept our Jewish identity. Like people knew us as the Jews, yeah. you know. Like we really like held strong to that, and it was. Um, it was good to not only learn what it means to be a Jew amongst Jews, but also what it means to be a Jew in a world that doesn't have Jews. For sure. And uh, although our school was like nearly 50% Jewish, mm -hmm. but uh, oh, wow. yeah, because it, it's right next to the Jewish neighborhood, but the school itself was in the... And still you two were known as the Jews. I wore a keep on tzitzit. I don't know if it was, that was 50% Jewish. You definitely had a lot of Jews, mostly like uh, Spanish Jews, like uh, those who had uh, experience in South America. Um, but you had a lot of different types of students, a lot of Haitians, a lot of Jamaicans, a lot of Cubans, a lot of Haitians, Puerto Ricans, yeah. a lot of many different types of Miami. And it was a very interesting school. Let's just put it that way. Very colorful. Rudy's always been outspoken about Israel. And a famous story that we have, Rudy, when we were 15 years old, decides to throw a party at his house. And his parents went away. They gave him permission to do a party. And he's charging at the door to come to this party. And he's donating all the money to Tal. Right? Should what we... were you doing at the party? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask if we should go on. So what, me and my genius friends, Ruch Hashem, one of them here in, in, in the land of Israel as well. You were, you were also in the army? Yeah. Yeah. But this is before. This is, we're 15, we're in Miami. Like, you yeah, know, yeah, well, yeah, I'm sure. No. Not too much before for you. But, oh, yeah, no skip right, ahead. Uh, but Rudy's having this party. My friends and I show up and there's no alcohol at the party. And he li happened to live very close to a plaza, to so like a shopping mall and an outdoor plaza thing. And we went and we got a bottle of alcohol with fake IDs at 15 years old. And we came back to his party, no alcohol. We started sh selling shots from the from the bathroom to people <laughs> for two dollars. <laughs> but uh, I'm sorry, dude. I did that. <laughs> Make chuba. No problem. Move forward. Find 10 percent of that money and give it to Tzah. <laughs> <laughs> I gave three years, two months to Tzah. I'm good. <laughs> so yeah so after school right we 
No, no, you finished school? I didn't finish. I, yeah. I had 11th grade, I left. <laughs> I just came here. No, no, I graduated and then uh, came straight here. I think we came here around the same time. Yeah. And I went straight in the army. I joined at 17, and I think you joined maybe a year later or something yeah. like that. Which uh, unit? San Khanim. Oh, very nice. Very nice. The ones with the skirts, as we call yeah. them. The ones that don't have to tuck in their shirts. On their <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, honestly, we were always jealous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're in Givati in the south, in the desert, just like jealous you guys are in the Golan, right? Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so so you, you get into the, the army, and um, this Rudy that was always, you know, the love of Israel, and, and definitely not in theory like whoever has watched other videos and interviews you always explain your story like when you were seven you, you know you experienced anti-semitic attack um in europe and from then i guess that really lit the spark mm -hmm. right um but then you come into the idf and now you're like literally standing front line right so for me at that age at seven years old when that spark was created i realized that the attack wasn't only against me and my mom my brother it was against the people that we came from because that individual didn't know who we are where we're from what we believe in don't believe in he just saw us as a part of a collective so if there's an attack against that collective i have to find a way to serve that collective in order for those attacks to be minimized or completely removed which the most obvious thing for me was doing the army every israeli has to do the army it's our home it's our country without the idf there's no israel that doesn't mean i agree with every way the idf is used that doesn't mean i agree with every policy or but everything it's essential for sure. but it's the it's not uh, people need to understand it's not the army of the state it's the army of the people now the state may be misusing that army but regardless it is the army of the people so for me there was no choice <clears throat> if i'm israeli if i'm a part of am Israel, i have to join join at 17. Uh, when I finished the army, it was really like where I took the next step of evolution because I always knew I was going to the army. Even in high school, everyone was no. saying, what school are you, are you applying to? I was like, I'm going to the IDF. Like, I'll apply to we'll schools after. You know? So for me, the, doing the army, although it was the next chapter after high school, was one that I was you know, very open with and knowing that I was going to do from a very young age. But what happened after is I started school in the US and that's when I realized this next wave of anti-Semitism on intellectual spaces, especially on the left, trying to find ways to attach all sorts of social justice suffering that exists with other minorities. Intersectionality or yeah, intersecting those problems with, with Israel and the Jewish people, which is exactly how anti Semitism works. Finding the source of suffering of a population and blaming that suffering on the Jewish people. Now it happens throughout time, throughout history, throughout different uh, places in the world, and it's happening today. And that's when the evolution took a uh, a jump from being a physical soldier on the ground, protecting my home, protecting the people, to now being a warrior on campuses intellectually. You talk about a certain person that it, and a certain attack that happened. You want to maybe talk sure. about it? Um, so very quickly, um, I was born in France. All of my grandparents were born in different countries. On my mother's side of the family in North Africa, Algeria, and Morocco. On my father's side of the family in Belgium and in, uh, in Poland. And so growing up, I had Same a here. <laughs> Belgium and Poland. Very, very mixed uh, identity, but that's not none of those places are where we're from. All of those places where my grandparents had experiences in, right? Because in Morocco, we weren't Moroccan. In Algeria, we weren't Algerian. In Poland, we weren't from Poland and all those other places. Same thing for the Jews in Russia. Same things for Jews in Germany, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Ethiopia. We were always Jews living there. So now that we've left those places, we can recognize the fact that we had an experience there, but that's not where we originate from. That's not where we belong. That's not our home. That's not our people. You can respect it, but that's not who we are. So that kind of like played a lot within my understanding of identity growing up because all of my grandparents were from those places. 
I'm supposed to identify with four places, but yet in those places, they weren't from those places. So how does that make sense? And I was born in France, second generation born there, um, then moved to Israel when I was three, then moved to Miami. And in Miami, it's a very mixed society with all sorts of different backgrounds. And people usually identify by where they last came from. You know, even in the Jewish community, we have the Maccabi games. You have a uh, Mexico and Panama and Colombia and Peru and Argentina and all these different teams playing each other and they're identifying with this country with this flag as Jews and it was crazy to me you know like why do you not identify with Israel why are we identifying by these other things and always someone would tell me oh you're from France or, oh you're from Israel or you're you're Ashkenazi or you're Sephardi and that kind of like frustrated me that apparently my answer on identity came from somewhere else and not from me and then that's when I went through this experience when I was seven, where me and my mother got kicked off of a bus for being Jewish. And uh, that's the moment that just everything clicked. I realized that, again, it doesn't matter that I was born in France, that my grandparents were born in all sorts of countries that I believe or don't believe this and that. What matters is that I'm a Jew. I'm a part of Am Yisrael. And that's why I was hated against. That's why me and my family were attacked. And it became very clear. So... Again, to me, the fact that I grew up in America, I appreciate that, but that's not where I'm from. It's not yeah, my people. 100%. The fact that I was born in France, appreciate that. It's not where I'm from. It's not my people. And you have to be proud to say it. You know, a lot of Jews are afraid to say, oh, but what if they think we have dual loyalty? No, we don't have dual loyalty. We have one loyalty, and that's Tami <laughs> Sled. Let's just say it honestly. It doesn't mean we're against somewhere else. It's like Moshe, you know? right? Moshe Rabbeinu, when, when, he, when he came to leave, Hashem, one of the plagues, you had to hit the water. Right? But the water saved him. So he had to have akaratatov. He had to have gratitude towards the water. He wasn't able to put a plague into the water and hit the water. So Aaron had to do it, right? Mm -hmm. But like, so we have this obligation to have gratitude, but that doesn't mean they even I said do. there in that same portion like we shouldn't celebrate. I think about the death of the Egyptians because, yeah. or it was another thing because we should still appreciate. I mean, appreciate, like, show some respect that they still hosted us, even though we're not good, the best hosts. But exactly, so, but we're not these. We're not these people. So then you, but then you choose to go to Colombia. Mm. Like, so I first started school at UCLA. Okay. Uh, my family had moved to LA in the time that I was in the army from Miami to LA, and that's when I started to realize these things happening on college campuses. And what frustrated me the most is not how strong the anti-Israel movement was, which they're strong but how weak the pro-Israel movement was, how weak our own side was. And so I went to many different uh, leaders um, in the community, heads of organizations, rabbis, heads of movements, and asked them, you know, what are we doing? Like, there's clearly a wave of people hating the Jewish people, a disconnect of identity for, for Am Yisrael, them seeing spirituality as something negative, so many problems that we're seeing in Galut, and 60 to 80% assimilation rate in America, there's a problem here, like, why aren't we dealing with it? And I kept getting these either like passive answers, ah, don't worry, it'll go away, it'll all fix each other in the end, you know, it'll be fine. Or to the contrary, if you do something, it'll get even worse for us. So don't do anything. Well, rabbis and other people, <coughs> rabbis, heads of, heads of organizations, all sorts of, of people like being passive and wow. even not only passive, but refusing and, and, and being against taking action, wow. which is against my nature. Um, so when I, when I found out that the real problem was that we haven't been doing our job and not that the other side has been doing a good job, um, I decided to do something about it. And I went on Google and I typed in number one most anti-Semitic school in North America. Columbia <laughs> University was listed number one. So I transferred to, to Columbia. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Wow. That's much something. And that's where you were? No, I don't know. Oh, okay. Hashem, I was in IDF and in Israel. I didn't go to college. Wow. <laughs> and and uh 
when you get there like you you have to <coughs> create an infrastructure of exactly why you transfer there though. yeah so i actually wrote it in my application um that i'm going to come here and revolutionize this campus and change the anti-semitism and bring people together create a space that was uh you know, for the Jewish people in Israel, but allowed a space for others, and also found a way to brought, bring Israelis and Palestinians together, which is exactly what we did. It definitely wasn't easy. We definitely had many challenges and obstacles, especially the first year. Uh, but after two years there, we became one of the stronger groups on, on campus. Is the anti-Semitism that's like, I know kind of the answer to this question, but I, I want to say, I've never been more than two hours on a college campus, mm -hmm. right? But like, is it purely from the students, or is it, and the and also the professors because we see that we see mm -hmm. that there's professors but like what about like the school like columbia people that are not teaching that are running the, the school. administration yeah um i'm sure you have individuals in the administration that are anti-israel and pro-israel but i think the administration isn't taking a position of being against the jewish students or against the students for israel they're more so um siding with the pop culture and if the pop culture dictates that the school is anti-Israel and most students here are against it, then that's what the school will cater for. Wow. So the problem is not changing the administration, but changing the pop culture. If we change the mentality and the way people they're going to lean into wherever they're going to lean into the pop, from. whatever is popular, yeah. whatever the most students agree with this, this is what we're going to take. You know, so it's, the ideology is not coming from them. It's coming from the culture that exists on the ground. So we need to try to change that and evolve so that we can have a space that is pro-Palestinian and pro-Israel and allow space for Jews to be strong and against anti-Semitism and all those things and not uh, focus on, you know, one of the symptoms of the problem. When uh, I myself have a YouTube channel, so I, I always like making videos. I never went on one thing. I was all over the place. But it really interests me. I'm also a filmmaker. How, how did YouTube come in? Mm -hmm. When did it come in? So it started also on, on campuses. I already had a, a Facebook page where I was making many posts and discussing things. So a few uh, thousand people were following. But while I was at Columbia, we needed to have you know a more proactive approach, which meant sometimes exposing people. In America, you have freedom of speech, but you have freedom of, a, of reaction to that speech as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and so the same way, if someone were to say something racist or sexist at Columbia today, they'd get automatically you know ostracized, removed even further canceled that's like the extreme of it but at least they would recognize that those ideas are bad and would speak out against them right and if someone says something against us or the jewish people no one says anything so in order to really change the situation you have to change the culture you have to change the perception you have to change the understanding and hold them accountable as exactly well for talking and crap. so we would go to their events and film them and uh, expose them and challenge them with very hard questions that would show that they don't actually represent Palestinians. They don't actually are even pro-Palestinians. They're using Palestinian suffering when it fits their agenda to be against Israel. And that's one of the main issues we see on campus is that this narrative of being pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel is always seen as it has to contradict. And in my opinion, it doesn't. For um, sure. So that's how the video started. We started to make videos exposing people and they started to get a lot of views and then interesting conversations. And uh, then I met uh, Noam Liebman, uh, who at the time went by the name Andrew with Liebman Productions. And he's just uh, an amazing artist when it comes to documentary filmmaking. You know, clearly talented, clearly has a gift, some light from Hashem uh, for doing what he does. And we decided to merge and join forces. And He was at Columbia? Or? <clears throat> he wasn't at Columbia. He was living in New York. He came to an event that I spoke at as the president of Student Supporting Israel Columbia. And uh, that's when... He found out about the things that I do, and that's when we joined forces. And while I was a student at Columbia, I went to the Chabad all the time, Rabbi Bloom. And I met a woman one time who came with this like very interesting looking kippah. 
and it had a menorah on it, and Magen David, it was clearly handmade, and I asked her, you know, where did you get this from? And she shows me a picture on her phone of, like, African Jews putting tefillin and praying and doing all sorts of stuff. And for me, the reaction was like, how do I not know that this exists? You know, I did the army. I'd been passionate about Jewish history and the Jewish people my whole life. I came to Colombia, Dafka, to stand up for the Jewish people. How do I not even know that a community of Jews exists like that in Africa? I've heard of Ethiopian Jews. I've heard of, uh, you know, Jews that are half black and that are Jewish, or, you know, like Drake, for example. I've heard of converts that are Jewish. I've never heard of another community. And it doesn't mean they don't exist. It's like an injustice that yeah. we don't know about them, right? That we weren't educated. And so that's when I decided to go into research mode and find out. And I found out about the Lemba in Zimbabwe and South Africa, the um, the Ibos in Nigeria, for which went to, um, all sorts of communities in Tanzania, Madagascar, and new emerging communities as well, like the Abayudaya, which we just went to Uganda for. So there are very interesting things happening. And that's kind of where the project that I'm doing, We Were Never Lost, started of finding out about these communities and realizing, wait a minute, A, if it was the other way around and they had come home first and we were still in Galut suffering, wouldn't we expect them to help us? Two, we know historically that there are 10 tribes that were displaced in Galut. Where are they? And number three, if we're looking at it from a religious perspective, in the Torah, there are many things. It says in the Torah, black and white, in the times of Mashiach, the tribes of Israel will come back from the four corners of the earth. Yeah. So we know that they come back. Number two, it says that Yehuda is blessed by Yaakov, or Yaakov blesses each one of his sons. And Yehuda is the blessing that you will be the one that preserves Torah and gives it back to the, your brothers when they lose it. Now, his brothers in his lifetime did not lose Torah. It's foreshadowing to yeah. the future tribes that will lose the connection of Torah, and Malchut Yehuda will be the one to bring it back. And the third thing in the Gemara, it also says that... Um, you know, one of the purposes for the exile of Israel so was for them get, to come yeah, back with uh, converts. converts. And so you also have this phenomenon happening in Africa, which we dedicated one episode out of the six, to talk about these emerging communities of converts that have joined the Jewish people or who are on their way to join the Jewish people. It's crazy. It's crazy. Just before we transition to, to into the African segment of this, right? Like, uh, these videos that you make, like with the, especially the confrontational ones, right? Um, outside of APAC or whatever it is. Where in the world did you get those midot of like, you know, the Baal Shem Tov has a teaching called Shiviti of like, Shiviti Hashem Lenigdi Tamid. I put Hashem is in front of me at all times, but Shiviti Baal Shem Tov says is Shivion. It's it's uh, equality, mm -hmm. equilibrium, right? That no matter if a, pers a person is praising me or is disgracing me or is putting me down. I'm in front of Hashem. I know it's all good. This is all for my good. And that's how I like uh, teaching the Baal Shem Tov. Whenever I watch your videos where you're like, you know, <laughs> going to war with these people, literally, you're, yeah. you're like so calm. I, I know for a fact I would never be able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> for a fact, she would go like, swinging. Yeah, throwing bows. But um, well, how, put do, it this how way. did you do that? Knowing me since uh, since high school, have you ever seen me lose my no. cool? No. And I don't know if you remember the story, but um, right when I came to Israel, we both came to Israel, we were in Shinshin, a club in, uh, yes. in Tel Aviv. Yes. And there was this like Alsim yes, that I were remember. like starting a fight. <laughs> wow, with, uh... I forgot about it, but I remember you ripped my shirt, ripped your shirt. <laughs> like, was, like, wait, 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 tell, then, tell us about this. <laughs> he, was, he was starting a fight because he was trying to like, you know, hit on one of the girls that was in a group who had a boyfriend who was with us, this yes. like nice French kid. And, um, and so he's like getting very aggressive. And at some point I bring him to the side and I speak to him and he starts to cry. 
And what I told him is basically like, you're wearing a Magen David. We're coming from Galut. You know how many people out there like want to kill us, want to come after us for thousands of years what we've been through? This, these are your family members. And you're coming at us and attacking us for what? For you trying to hit on a girl that has a boyfriend? Like, you wouldn't want that happening to your sister, to your mother, to your friend, to your cousin, right. to anyone. And he started to cry. And so I felt that, you know, in that moment, I could try to connect to what he really cared about and what he's in the way he sees the world. And I think that's how I've always approached each situation. You know, when I look, when I speak to an anti-Semite, like neo-Nazis that you might be referring yeah. to in the videos, first of all, they don't know me personally. So the fact that they hate me doesn't come from something personal. It comes from the fact that they were taught misinformation. So there's a lie there. There's a something wrong that has to be litaken. We have to fix this. And number two, there's clearly pain that they have that they feel they need the way to get out of it is to attack the Jews and to take it out on the Jews. So if I notice that this is the cause really of, of why they're in this position, why don't I use my energy to try to heal that or to fix that? And in the moment, if you take yourself out of the f situation, right, that you might be very emotional, it may be the first time in that person's life that they meet a Jew. Yeah. Maybe the last time in that person's life, lifetime that they meet a Jew. And you might not change them in one conversation, but you might have planted some seeds that take some time to grow and for them to realize in order to grow. And everyone can do tshuva. Now, if they get physical, which Baruch Hashem, in those types of situations, it's never happened in the Bay videos, you know, I would obviously defend myself physically. But if it's not physical, then I'm going to try to find a way to, to come to a solution. It's amazing. Very beautiful. It's a, it's a, it's a power though, because it's midot. In the end of the day, like you know, the, the biggest kabbalist of Tzfat said that the real reason we're here in this world is to, to the takenam midot, to fix our midot. And when we fix ourselves individually, obviously, it has an, it's, an it has an effect on everyone around us. And I, I don't think. I think it goes beyond that. He's fixing. Avat Israel. If I die, if I die, for a Jew, for sure. But when you, when that person who's like a sonne, like you put them in such an awkward position, like that guy in the club that you brought up, mm -hmm. right? Like, why did he cry? You shattered him in a second, right? But with what? With with metikut, with sweetness, mm -hmm. with like, it's, it's. I don't know. I'm. A, I. I always. I would love it. I love it. I love watching those videos just because I, I take more. Forget the conversation. The conversation, most of the times, they, they go over. If you've mm -hmm. been in Israel and you know this, like you've heard these conversations, you've probably lived through arguments like this. But the dynamic of the conversation, mm -hmm. that's that's the, that's the what I, stands out to me. But yeah. How'd you get arrested, bro? I thought I was only going to be the one that went to jail. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think everyone from Krupp at some point gets arrested. <laughs> But uh, yes, yeah, so we find ourselves doing this project. And the goal of We Were Never Lost is to bring light to these uh, stories of disconnected communities of Jews around the world, whether they're lost tribes or emerging communities or re-emerging communities like the Benin Sim. And each season is in a different region. Season one, Africa, two, Asia, three, South America, which we know many Benin Sim communities exist. And it's to go to all four corners of the earth and to bring Amisal back in together. And so one of the episodes for Africa is in Nigeria, the Igbo people which are a fascinating uh, uh, group of people. They believe to be descendants from Shevet Gad. Uh, there are many things that they've been doing for thousands of years that are very mosaic, Abrahamic traditions, circumcisions, mikvehs, um, laws of nidot for when a woman is on her menstrual cycle to, you know, to be disconnected yeah. from, from her husband, all sorts of practices that are clearly not from Africa. Um, and there's a river that goes from the Middle East all the way into that area that they believe that they traveled through. They actually have a theory that God himself had a son when he moved to Egypt. And that son with other Hebrews moved and created an outpost in this region called Afra, 
which eventually become, became called Be'afra or Biafra, and this is what is today southern Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And eventually, when the tribes were displaced, God knew that they had an outpost of God over there, and that's where they came. That's the theory. But there are many things that are uh, factual. The fact that they've been practicing these Hebrew customs for thousands of years. There's a narrative that says, oh, wait a minute, what if they were inspired by Christianity? You know, and just took on the Bible and said, we want to become Hebrews and Jews as well. Well, this has already been disproven because the first uh, people from Europe who came to Africa were proselytizing Christianity before colonizing. And as the church was sending people to this region, which eventually became called Nigeria, which really combined three regions, the people coming to Africa were writing letters back to the church saying, we are witnessing Jewish life here. We're witnessing people speaking Hebrew and practicing. What do we do with them? And they said, convert them to Christianity as well. So the theory that Christianity is what came first is obviously not true. Now, can I trace back exactly when, who that? I don't. Will it be found and discovered down the line? Maybe. But what else can we see is how they're treated within society. First of all, they're the most successful demographic in all of Africa. (laughs) Jews tend to succeed because of our culture, the way we raise ourselves, the way we value education, the way we value helping one another. If there's ever a problem that happens, hey, I need help with this. Oh, let me call my cousin. He's going to talk to his uncle and he's going to help you like this. I'm saying things that any Jew hearing this will right away be like, okay, you know, or whenever there's a problem in society, it's always blamed on the Igbos. Oh, you guys run the media. You guys run the economy. You guys are the reasons for this. We would be better if it wasn't for you. And they tend to be the highest positions of of success. They're the ones who own the real estate. They're the ones who run the businesses. And it doesn't mean that if you are Igbo, you automatically, if you're not, you're not. But when you have a very high percentage of success due to your culture and due to the way you interact with your society because you help one another, right? We help each other rise up, which is not something that exists in most other cultures, even minorities that kind of are jealous as to one another. So a lot of those things are very clear characteristics of a diasporic experience. Um, So there's that. Now we get to, to, uh, to Nigeria, it was like very hard to get there. But before getting there, Noam comes up with this idea, Noam is the filmmaker, that we need to bring a Sefer Torah. He just, something comes and tells him, we need to, we can't come empty-handed, we need to bring a Sefer Torah. Now I told him, don't worry, we're not coming empty-handed, we're bringing uh, a Shiviti that I got made by uh, the Jerusalem scribe, Kalman, yeah, a friend of mine. Kalman. He made a, a very specific custom one made that we got many prints made to give to each community. It's like, don't worry, like we're not coming empty-handed, and Achi, we're visiting 10 communities in Nigeria. You want to bring how many Sefotot? 10 Sefotot? Mm-hmm. And then in uh, in Zimbabwe and then in Madagascar? Like, how many? That's impossible. Plus, Sefotot is how much? $100,000? Insane. And so he's like, Rudy, you're always one to tell me that if you believe in something, to do it. And I'm like, I do, but like, you know, let's be a little <laughs> let's bit be realistic. Let's be a little bit realistic here. And I'm like, you know what? If it's meant to happen, it happens. One phone call, this person calls another person, we get a donation, and someone is selling us a Sefotot for $6,000. Now, we don't know who this person is. He wants to remain anonymous. And from what we had heard from the person in between is that he was told to keep the Sefer Torah safe until he would know the moment he had to let it go. And I don't know how he knew we were the moment, but we were the moment for him. And he let it go to us. Now, this is a Sefer Torah that survived the Shoah, about 200 years old, um, is written in an ancient Khtav that doesn't even exist, that existed for Ukrainian Jews, which is very similar to the Sephardic because they didn't actually change and so we had the like uh, indiana jones of khtav to come and to show us which what it is and which communities like i've never seen a full sefer torah actually written in the khtav that is completely wow. extinct and so we are able to to have the sefer torah which is a miracle now the issue is like the outside case is like a wooden case very plain so we get uh solomon souza 
um, to be able to do an amazing art piece of two lions, which is Shevet Yehuda, yeah. opening up the Sefer Torah because we bring back Sefer Torah to the rest of the Shvatim. <laughs> and the back wow. is, a, is a DNA spiral tree rooted into the ground with uh, 12 uh, stars into the tree representing the 12 tribes. And on the top, each letter for each tribe, it was like a beautiful art piece. Wow. Uh, so, you know, miracle after miracle. Within two days before we leave, we get a Sefer Torah that survived the Holocaust that's like... A, something that you know you would think it, it belongs in a in a museum if it hadn't if it's not serving yeah. its purpose for so now which it definitely is number two we get this uh last day before we fly uh solomon to come one of the most amazing artists did all the machana yuda things uh, in the shuk and then number three now we need to transport it okay so i can't bring the whole case with me in the airplane so we have to pack up the case ship it with the luggage and have to bring the scroll wrapped in a talit with me on the plane now our plane is from tel aviv istanbul istanbul lagos lagos asaba asaba drive to Ogidi. that's our trajectory wow now the, the a lot the, of things can go wrong in a lot of things can go wrong. in africa <laughs> the flight from israel to istanbul is okay you know they understand jews and this and that I'm carrying a Sefer Torah, but they say I can't have it on me when we're taking off. You can't have anything, you can't have anything in front of you. I have to put it on top. So I make sure to wrap it with like blankets and that there's nothing else there. It's not going to get damaged. And I make sure to pack it up safe. The woman was very nice. Now, flight from Istanbul to Lagos, Muslim country to predominantly Muslim government that doesn't necessarily know so much about the Jewish people. That's, you know, Turkey is not the most pro-Israel country. Nigeria, you know, it depends, you know, you have some that are, some that aren't. Um, so we're traveling from this country to this country. It's much harder to explain why Sefer Torah has to be kept safe and what it actually is. So we rush to our flight, which we're already late. We get to the flight. We're all the way in the back of the plane, fully, fully, like there's not one spot, okay? And there's not one spot either in the top. So I'm opening it. It's like all these bags that are fit in. How am I going to put the Sefer Torah inside? And so I tell the flight attendant, listen, there's no way I can... Put the Sefer Torah. It's an ancient scroll from Jerusalem. It's it survived the Holocaust. It's two hundred years old. There's no way I can put it there. I need a clear spot. And she like, oh, what if we move this? I'm like, no, no. Either we take all these stuff and we put them somewhere else, and I put the Torah here, or I need another spot. So like, okay, come with me. She takes me all the way to first class, opens uh, one of the compartments that's empty because there's less people there. We put the blankets and everything, and right behind me, Dafka out of this huge plane, hundreds of people, right behind me, I hear. Shomachi, the Sefer Torah, right there, <laughs> right there is an Israeli. Like out of all places, right in uh, across exactly where I'm putting, and I'm like, oh. because as I'm walking there, <laughs> as I'm walking there, all I could feel is like, okay, at least it's gonna be safe. But what if someone goes to the bathroom and touches it? I don't have eye contact with it. I'm feeling uncomfortable, and boom, there's a there's a Jew there, and I tell him, listen. Wow. Um, you know, it's not a coincidence that you're that you're right there. You know, you have to watch over for me. And he's like, no problem. I go back. And two minutes later, the flight attendant comes. And she says, uh, he wants to speak to you again. Go back there. And I walk back to him. And he's like, uh, what's your seat number? And I'm like, I'm this seat, one of the last ones, like before last. He's like, okay, we're changing seats. You're sitting here with the Sefer Torah. And I'm going back. And he gives me on like an eight-hour flight, first class, to sit against the Sefer Torah. But it like keeps going. Like everything we experience in this Nigerian prison experience, which was definitely harsh, and we'll talk about it, was miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And that's one of the big reasons that we had no fear, that we knew that we were there for a purpose. We knew Hashem was with us. We 
don't have as much trauma afterwards because of how we dealt with it in the moment and how comfortable we were that this was meant to be. So we arrive in uh, Nigeria. <laughs> they open up our, our luggages, especially Noam's case with all the camera gear, and they take out our drones. And they say, no, you're not allowed to bring drones here. It could be spyware. It can be this. We don't allow drones. You could only rent it from here, but you can't bring it. So I listen, it's thousands of dollars of equipment here. Like, okay, we won't use them, but let us keep them. No, we're going to have to confiscate them, this and that. And I'm holding the Torah in my hand. And the woman's like, what is that? I'm like, it's an ancient Bible scroll from Jerusalem. And her eyes just like go wide. And she's like, just, just take it and go, take it and go. And she lets us the take drone? our drones. Yeah, let's just take <laughs> our drones. We continue. Now we're rushing. Wow. To, to the, it's like, it, it's, it's one after the other after the other. We're rushing now to the next flight. And as we're rushing to the next flight, because we were held up with this whole custom stuff, we might miss it. So we're really going fast in order to make it. And there's a woman like dressed all in white, Nigerian, African, black woman, who like looks at me and she smiles as I'm walking with it. And I'm like, okay, maybe she sees foreigners. We look a little bit different. So she's just smiling. And as I walk by, I didn't even have time to talk to her. She goes like this. Like, clearly she knows that I have a Sefer Torah with me. How and who and what? I have no idea. We keep she going. couldn't technically see that it's a sephir. She couldn't. It was a talitos wrapped around, but she like uh. knew there was something there. She felt it. We finally arrive to to Asaba, and then we take a drive to Ogidi, and we meet the Igbo community in Ogidi. And you know, I'm sure all of you. Ogidi. Ogidi. God. God. Maybe. God. Maybe. <laughs> okay. Um, and so we're there, and the, uh, you know, I'm sure you've met many Jews around the world, and there's. A common Jewish experience that we have that when you meet a fellow Jewish soul, you know right away, you know, it's family. And this is the same experience we had with them times 100. Not only do they know who they are, where they're from, they're fully connected, they practice every single ounce of Torah, like from Shoma Shabbat, they wake up early in the morning for, uh, you know, everything that they do. Everything that they see and relate to is, is Torah. Like we'll say, hey, when are we going to the market? Oh, it reminds me of when Moshe and Bamidbar is talking to the, like everything that they are seeing in their surrounding has to do with Torah. And it's not just you meet fellow Jews, you meet fellow Jews that our ancestors fought together, lived together, lived, you know, in our home together. And you recognize it and they recognize it that this is a historic moment that you finally come home to, like have finally were able to reconnect. So it was a beautiful experience. Um, we were there for two days with the community. And um, on the third day there, which was Friday morning, this is where we got uh, captured by the DSS. Now, a little backstory of, to understand why the Nigerian government is um, a government that's very anti the Igbos. Not surprising. You know, Jews usually are not so loved in uh, many different places. And even if they're loved for... The Igbo are not a minority, though, right? They're... Like, politically, they might be, but uh, demographic, okay. but so amounts of people... Politically, they huge. definitely are. They're not allowed to, ha to have a lot of different the same rights uh, politically. Um, they're 50 million. Yeah, but okay. Nigeria is 250 million. Ah, okay. So they are... They're three large ethnic groups. They are the third largest. Um, but they are the minority out of the three that's that's persecuted. Basically, England came and took three different lands, three different peoples, made them one, and gave the power to the majority, which was the House of Fulani, which were less educated, so had less access to the economic power, whereas the Igbos were more educated, had more of the economic power, so they got political power. We got economic power, the, the Igbos, and there's been clashes ever since, which is exactly the, the way that the British, you know, do their, their foreign colonies divide and, and roles. Exactly, divide and conquer. And so we're in a reality where we're doing a documentary on a people for which the government of the country we're coming into is not so pro this people. In fact, in the past, 
you know, a few months, 500 Ibos killing. were killed. Yeah. Um, in 1967, the same year we had Shichul Yerushalayim, they also fought a liberation war, which Israel actually helped them in, and 3 million Ibos were killed, massacred. And so you see, like, you, parallel... You said in the last few months? No. In the last few months, last over few 500, months, 500 people. Yeah, yeah. They're yeah. constant, like, being killed on the... By who? By the government. By the government. Yeah, the watch government videos will, online. It's yeah, disgusting. Yeah, yeah. The, in, the in military how, comes in, they shoot them, they set their houses yeah, on fire, yeah. they rape women. It's disgusting. Yeah. They just come in yeah. just yeah. like yes. programs. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Basically. Wow. And so that's that's the reality of their, their current experience, uh, which in the end I'm going to bring back because we went through three weeks of, of, of hardships, but they go through generations every single day of this. So we have nothing to, to compare to what they go through. And if anything, I want to use this opportunity to bring light to that, you know, through sharing our experience. Yeah, my internet didn't work two days ago, but I don't know if that's... Yeah, well, <laughs> you know. um, Hashtag so, first world problems. <laughs> so we, we get to this community, we're right there, everything's fine. And on Thursday night, which is the end of the second night, we start seeing these blog posts of people saying like ridiculous things. Mossad agents have come to Nigeria to take apart the Nigerian government, like in these funny accents on YouTube videos. And we're like laughing as how ridiculous this is. We're making a documentary on Jewish tribes around the world, not coming to topple governments. Um, and they've brought a Sefer Torah that's going to destroy Nigeria. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> you know, like, where are you guys getting Power. this from? And, um, might be right in a way. <laughs> may, maybe spiritually, you know, spiritually, fix things, yeah. but uh, you know, not nothing political, nothing uh, military, nothing anything like that. So we arrive in, uh, in in this. This starts to happen, and so we write a post on Facebook, you know, official post saying we're not a part of any political mission, we're not a part of any governmental, you know, diplomatic group. We're here purely to tell the stories and a documentary, nothing to do with that. Where were you coming, saying this? The, where were we staying? No, you're saying this to... We're saying this on Facebook as a, pu ah, a public okay, post okay. of our page so that, you know, all the media outlets that are going crazy right now in Nigeria yeah. will see that this is what we're saying. We have nothing to do with mm. what you're accusing of us. We think that this is enough. You know, keep in mind that we're on a spiritual hive. Like, these things, like, nonstop happening. We're with, like, our family members. You can feel it in front of you, like, their energy. You can feel them being, like, your family. So we're on a very spiritual high. Like, everything is happening for a reason for us. And the next morning, 7 in the morning, we wake up. We had to go to Tefillah at 7.45. We had to leave. So, uh, you know, we're packing our stuff. 7.30, we get a call from the hotel saying, come downstairs with your phones and passports. The police are here. Okay. We take our, our passports and phones. We go downstairs. And it's not the police. It's 15 armed gunmen with black ski masks pointing guns at us. What Whoa. guns are they pointing at us? Israeli. Tavols. Tavols. <laughs> like, you can't make this up. Like, it's like sign after sign after sign. Like, it's like, it's there. Like, so, yeah, wow. Like, a Tavol is pointing What were you thinking at this moment? Um, you know, in the moment, I'm just reacting to survive. Like, uh, We'll figure it out. Like everything, you know, everything. they tell us, don't worry. You know, we're not arresting you. We're just taking you in for some questioning. It should take about two hours. We'll bring right. you back. And of course, if someone were to just tell me to come, I wouldn't come. But we have guns pointed at our face, so we don't really have an option. They take our phones and passports. We go outside, and we have three different vans. And they put us each in a different van wow. with five, six soldiers surrounding us, drive us to this government facility. And when we get there, the only thing I had on me that at that moment was my Tfilin, my case of tefillin that I have. And Noam did as well. He's uh, left-handed, I'm right-handed. And so it's two separate uh, tefillins. And so we get there and we're like, okay, it's going to be two hours. Let's leave uh, our tefillin in the car. Who knows that we get there, they'll search us, they'll open it up. We'll leave it in the car and then we'll come back and get it after. We leave it in the car. We get held into this uh, government facility uh, room and it's like, 
okay, one hour, two hours, you go up for interrogation, come back, you go up for interrogation, come back, like over and you over. Guys are together though, We're sitting? together Friday, but now it's like 4 p.m., 5 p.m., I haven't put tefillin yet. And so I ask uh, the guard to allow the driver to go get my tefillin, and I tell Noam, hey, do you want him to bring your tefillin as well? And Noam's like, no, you can leave it in the car, I'm fine. Because we're in our mindset, we're, we're getting out, but me, I'm realizing it's getting late, I should, I should go and get it. And the driver goes, and instead of bringing my tefillin, he brings Noam's tefillin. Now, no coincidences, this mistake. He brings Noam's tefillin, and he's like, okay, you know what, I'll keep it. You don't have to bring it back, but go and get Rudy's. And because he did that, we ended up having our tefillin with us, and we would have never seen the tefillin again if he hadn't made that oh, mistake. Oh, you didn't ask for it. <clears throat> I asked for mine, but yeah. he ended up bringing Noam's instead. But Noam's the one that got yours back as well. But he said, go and get, uh, <laughs> go and get both back. So we uh -huh. get both back. Now we put on tefillin. This is now Friday, like 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Shabbat is approaching. And there's a few things that I've never broken in my life. I've kept kosher my whole life. I've done kiddush my whole life. I've done all the fasts my whole life. So those are things that are very core and very important to me. And so I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to miss my first kiddush. You know, there's no way. So we ask some of the guards once we realize we're going to end up spending the night here. You know, can you bring us some food, some apples, some crackers, some, something we haven't eaten all day? And if you can find grapes in some fridge or something that is in this like government facility, please bring us grapes. And uh, they were able to find us like a small cluster of grapes. And we did the kiddush on some grapes and the motzi on some crackers. And we kept strong to like our yadut and everything that was important. And in our mind, we're like, you know what? Tomorrow we're getting out. Everyone since we've gotten here has been telling us, Africa time, Africa time. Things go slow in Africa time. So you know, they go, <laughs> for sure, Svat time. Or, or you go to the Caribbean, you know, things are slow. You go to like uh, the Persians in Grey Neck, they'll tell you uh, Persian time, you know. Everyone uses that except for maybe Germans. By the way, just a German just time. quick question. You, you were interrogated till now, like yeah. brought in. How did that go? Like, were they rough? Were they being nice? Were they playing it both um, ways? They weren't, at this point, this was before we got taken to the real prison. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, they were being aggressive psychologically. Um, they were Scare playing mi mind games. Uh, one of our team members, David, he's 47. So it was very strange to them that, uh, I'm 28 now, but at the time I was 27. It was very strange for them that a 27-year-old person would be the team leader when someone's 47. Mm. So they kept saying, we know he's the leader, you know, he's the team leader. Like, he already told us, you can tell it. Like, they were lying mm. in order for me to admit. <laughs> and I'm just like, listen, you probably learned these tactics from Israelis. I'll save you the time. It's not going to work on me. <laughs> so how about you, like, ask me what you have to ask. I'll answer all your questions and we can uh, go, you know. So that's kind of how I was going. There was a lot of, like, mind games that they were playing, but nothing, like... Uh, torturous at that point um <clears throat> we wake up in the morning the next morning again 7 a.m the 15 armed men come shabbat, bar bar shabbat bust through the door guns blazing like uh, pointing at us get up get up get up wow we get up put our shoes very quickly go outside and in my mind it's like okay they're bringing us back they realize we're not stum anybody that you can mess with people know who we are and they're going to get in a lot of trouble it's going to create the whole balagan and i see the three cars you know, the three cars that they brought us in, three vans. And I see that they're bringing us, all three of us, into the same van. Now, right away, I'm like realizing, okay, we came here, three separate vans. There's three vans, but we're all going in the same one. There's a change in the pattern here, meaning we're not going back to the same place. And what is basically us being in the middle van and two cars being on the outsides? It's a patrol. We're the cargo. They're transporting us somewhere. Now, where are they transporting us is the first thing that comes to my mind. Like right away, this is as I'm walking to the car, what's processing my mind? And before I get into the to the van, I asked him, where are you taking us? 
says, you don't need to know. And they push us inside. And that's the moment where I shift from, it's going to be okay to there's a, problem there's a problem in front of us. You know, people get executed left and right here. They might take us to some hole in the jungle and get rid of us. And there's no way that we are going to be in this generation led to the slaughter like they did in the gas chambers. And there's no way that my story ends in the middle of a hole in Nigeria. We have to find a way <laughs> to get out of here. There's no doubt. So all I'm thinking about while I'm in the car is how I can take one of their guns and take them out and get us out of there. That's all that I'm thinking about. Like, I'm looking at the street signs. Are we going towards the jungle? Are we staying on the road? Mom and David are um, lucky they're with you. Bro. Yeah, I'm looking at the, the interactions <laughs> of this. Crazy. This guard is, like, kind of falling asleep. I can, you know, target him first and take out the general. Uh, the officer that they have there, then this person is really tall. He can barely move. He's the le like, least problematic in the situation. All, that's all I'm thinking in the first hour. And then I keep asking them, where are you taking us? Where are you taking us? Where are you taking us? Because I don't want to do something without knowing I'm going to do because this is like last case scenario. In the meantime, you're driving and driving. In the meantime, we're driving. And it's not just driving. Like they're running people off the roads. They're pointing their guns outside, like, you know, pointing people. They're like, wow. they're very aggressive. It's like out of a movie. It's like wow. a, a movie experience. And we finally, um, after an hour of like asking them, where are you taking us? Where are you taking us? One of them is like, just tell them already. And they're like, okay, we're taking you to Abuja. There's another 10 hour drive. Abuja is the capital city in the north. And over there, don't worry, you'll get your passports, you'll get your phones, your ambassadors will be waiting, you'll get a lawyer. We just need to do the process over there. That's the capital city. Now, at least now I know we're not being taken to our death, at least from what I'm told. So I'm not going to do something that uh, doesn't need to be done. And so we wait and we're hoping to, to hear better news. And we arrive finally at this place. Now it's Saturday, like 6 p.m. We arrive, they hold us into this like room that they have. And on the side, I see a door. And this is like a wooden door. And after 10 minutes of waiting in this room, they open the wooden door. And then there's a metal cage gate door that they open. And they pull out this elderly Nigerian man, matted beard. One of his legs is swollen, barefoot, ripped jeans, like shorts. His shirt is brown. You know, uh, he has shackles on his feet, just like walk. Clearly the guy is sick and has been tortured in there for a long time. Hmm. And they take him out and they close the gate and they close the wooden door. And they walk him outside. And I tell Noam and David, listen, we have to do everything we can to fight because in a few seconds they're going to come back and they're putting us in there. I think that's what they took him out to put us in. And they come back and they're like, okay, uh, shoes off, uh, watches off, rings off, anything you have on you, off. Now, what happens to you when you get arrested? They take your shoes, mm -hmm. you know, the shoelace. They do a lot of stuff to you. And I'm recognizing that this is the scenario that we're in. We're going to be put into this cage. And Noam asks, why, why do we need to take our shoes off? Why? Why? I'm like, oh, because you need to go in there. And we're refusing. Like, we're telling them there's no way. You're going to have to, like, throw us in if you want it. And that's exactly what they did. They came, you know, 10 people, and they picked us up, and they threw us in there. And we find ourselves in this, like, small cage, maybe, like, four meters by four meters, like, very, very small. Um, no AC, um, no light, uh, full of, like, rat feces and human urine. Uh, on the floor and in bottles, you know how in the Shatakh, like, they have yeah. it there. Uh, black on the walls like it's just like from human filth writings with like tallies of how many uh you know months people spent there things written this is the university of life remember my name because tomorrow they execute me mold everywhere like the most disgusting situation you can be in i'm saying like after two days we were pulling black from our noses from just breathing in rat feces like that's how disgusting the the, the conditions are there and we find ourselves there and you know i'm not going to go all in the details of, of everything that we went through but there are many things we needed to figure out in order to get us out. And we had different strategies and we're applying those strategies in order to get out. Um, 
But why finally, did you guys decide against the public? So that wasn't scream. me. That was, was my, my family. And the reason is, is because the government is very different than other governments. Just a week before we arrived there, the president made a tweet against the Ebos, threatening them with genocide. And Twitter took it down, obviously, because it violated their guidelines. And he banned Twitter from all of Nigeria. You don't have Twitter in Nigeria anymore. Wow. So this president is someone that's like, oh, you're going to come at me like that? Uh, okay. Let me like kill one, you know, or let me cut their hands off. You know, that that's the type of scenario that so, we're in. It's better to stay quiet. And, so uh, that that yeah. was their, I mean, we in hindsight, you don't know what could have yeah. worked better. But at the end of the day, we're out, you know, yeah, and we're out and healthy. Um, so what Wait, was, I prayed for you. Thank you. I think it was also a moment that helped Amisal gather together, you know, in tough times. Uh, so there's a lot of other things that happen to us while we're in there. After the first week, David is gets very sick. Um, he has an immune system disorder and he gets taken to the hospital and eventually they extract him. After the first week, we finally got our first meal. Uh, they didn't give us food for a week, only water. Wow. And uh, we held strong saying we won't eat unless you give us kosher food. Because By the know. way, whoever is listening to this, this was all happening during the three weeks. Yeah, from the 17th of Tammuz to, to the 9th of uh, Tisha B'Av. Yeah, Tisha B'Av, we did it in the, in the prison. Um, wow. And so we're in this situation, and they're not giving us food. And we said, you know what? I, I tell basically Noam and David, look, they're not giving us food, not because they want to kill us, because they wouldn't give us water if they want to kill us, they would have killed us before, because they want us to suffer. Technically, we can survive a month without eating. So at some point, they're going to come and give us food. And when they do, this is what we're going to do. We're going to tell them, sorry, we can't eat your food the same way most of you are Muslim. If someone came and gave you pork, you wouldn't eat it. We are Jewish. We can't eat your food. We eat kosher. But I have a solution for you. There's a place in Abuja that has kosher food. It's called Chabad. And if you go there, they will give you kosher food. And they'll even deliver it here for free. Now, why do we do this? Of course, A, we want kosher food, but right. you know, we can eat non-kosher food if it's for life and death. You can get the message out. Exactly. We knew that the world was looking for us. We knew that if Chabad would hear that there are three Jews that they need to provide food for in prison, these are the three Israelis that are missing. And wow. the world was able to put two and two together with my family and my brother who realized on find my friends that I was in a governmental facility and all sorts <laughs> of stuff. Uh, Mikhail, you know, that happened. Did, did anyone know at this point where you were? No, At that point, they're starting to to figure it out, mm. you know, that we're in the DSS hands mm. and not kidnappers of someone else. And so after a week, they finally give us our first meal. And we only had one meal a day from Chabad that would bring us food every day. We finally took our first shower, uh, which means going to the bathroom that they don't have toilet paper. They have a bucket they clean themselves with. So you take the bucket and you pour it on your head. Um, and they move us to a new cage with two roommates that are Boko Haram terrorists. Uh -huh. Uh, one of which killed sure. 70 people in uh, a terror attack. And this is, an, this is a wing of ISIS, Boko Haram. And so we're, we're not in the best of uh, conditions, <laughs> you would imagine. Not the best everything we're doing is a fight. Like whether wow. it's like with the guards, whether it's the interrogators, everything we're doing Did is like fighting. Did you get to speak to the Chabadnik or to the no, Arabian? No, only after, only when we got out. Are you getting at all still interrogated during this yeah, time? Yeah, so it's like during the day, they take us out, interrogate us, bring us back in. And you're in a cage, like you have no nothing. You have no not like no stimulation. No, not you're locked. Like you, you go crazy at some point. Like let me out. I want to live my life. I have things to do. You know, I shouldn't be here. I've done nothing. And you know, one of the things I would say, there's another two uh, miracles that happened to us in there. Uh, the first one I'll say with our tefillin, the only thing we had on us was tefillin. When we gave back all this stuff, when they asked us to take this and that, we said no to the shoes and no to the tefillin. So we kept our shoes on. Um, and we fought them, and because we fought them, they just let us be, and they kept our tefillin. So every day we would put tefillin on, 
And Noam had um, one of the Shema packets that you get from the Kotel, that on the back of it, there's an English that says, in the Talmud it is written that when you were feeling in times of war, you strike fear in the hearts of your enemy. And so <laughs> we read that, and Noam's wow. like, listen, we're planning to do a protest, let's do it with our tefillin. And so <laughs> we put on our tefillin, and they come to get us for the interrogation, and the guy looks at us and he's like, what are you wearing? What is that? I was like, oh, it's our, it's called tefillin. It's our religious item. We have to wear it today for spiritual reasons. He's like, oh, because when I saw it, you scared me. Like the first thing he says is you scared me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, no, but he can, we were like, you know, we we're not crazy. So they could tell that we were not. Uh, you guys weren't giving them problems. No, we, we give problems in the right times. Yeah. That, that's the key. Give but reasonable, right like I'm not eating just kosher. I yeah, just, or uh, like I'm gonna, if you touch me, I'm gonna fight mm -hmm. you back. You know, but like if you cross the line, not just for anything, yeah. to see that you know you don't mess with me after a certain line. There are certain things that you respect. You put the boundaries. So, yeah, and I was always keeping them on their toes, always like uh, showing them like you're not gonna treat me as an animal. I'm not lesser than you. Mm -hmm. So for example, after they take us with the tefillin, for the first time for some reason they bring us to an elevator. And we go down to the lobby floor, which is where we're planning to do like a big protest and screaming because there you have civilians, you have people higher up and we wanted to make noise. This is the path to go to the interrogation. That's where we chose to do it. And so they take us down instead of the stairs for the elevator the first time. And we're on the um, on the third floor. And so I see three, two, one, minus one, minus two. And so Skip I'm like, uh, sorry, minus one, minus, there's no minus two, just minus one. Okay, so it's just the basement floor. And uh, I ask him, I'm like, uh, so what do you have on minus one? What do you do over there? Like, are you keeping uh, prisoners there? Are you torturing people? Like, you know, I'm like, you know, talking to them. And he's like, uh, need to know. And like, he's basically saying, you don't need to know, you know, like he thinks he's funny. And so the other one like starts laughing, like, ha ha, he got you, he got you. And he's like, do you know what need to know means? I'm like, yeah, I get it, need to know. I don't need to know. Like, you think you're funny that you're not going to tell me as if I don't need to know. That's fine because I, I'm, I was going to tell you what's on minus two, but now I'm not going to tell you. He's like, what's on minus? I was like, don't worry about it. Need to know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like constantly showing them that we're showing them that we're sharper than them. And um, and so they take us down, and finally, like we have our tefillin on, and me and Noam, like you know, very loud, say, "Let us go. This is illegal violation of human rights. There's no way we're staying like this." And it took like 30 people to jump on us and pull us. Like Noam's tefillin were like all the way down after. Like we really put up a fight and they throw us back into the cage. And this like created a whole big noise all over the prison. Everyone was talking about us, which was the purpose of doing that. And definitely made a lot of movements that would have happened later on and not sooner if we hadn't yeah. done that. And uh, they keep us then two days in the cage without going out with no food. They like punish us with no food. There were times where they would uh, keep us in the first cage and they came and they painted the whole entire room oh. and they made us stay in like painted room. Like oh, we're wow. like suffocating, like we can't breathe the whole night. Like <gasps> we're like this, you know, you, in, you can feel your throat like sore, like you're, yeah. you're bloody burning like, inside. It's burning inside, uh, you know, afterwards. There are a lot of things that they did wow. like that. Um, but the last uh, miraculous thing before I get to the conclusion is whenever they would take us to the interrogation, they would take us downstairs through the lobby into the interrogation hallway. Now this is a long hallway. You have one door, one door, one door, one door. And basically the way it works is you have the guards that are standing here and you have the interrogation happening here. And the guards are always the guards having to do with the interrogation room. All the stuff that they have going on in 250 million people, this is the main facility for the worst crimes and the worst things. You know, you have most wanted pictures all over, you know, the prison. And so 
they always take us down, 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 down the hallway and into the very specific room. Now, they're all numbered, the rooms. And which room are we always brought into? 18. 18. Which room, <laughs> which room is across from us? That is the room, like, responsible for the guards that these are the two rooms we're associated to? 26. 26. Right? I didn't tell you, right? No, you didn't tell the, me. the two most popular, yeah, most important, like, numbers for the Jewish people is 18 and 26. Now, 18 means chai, life, and 26 is Hashem. Yeah. So, I'm like, okay, this is definitely a sign, but I'm not putting it together. I'm not understanding it until another day that I'm walking down and I'm noticing on every single door handle, on every door, there's Hebrew on it. And it says Magen. It's an Israeli door company that sold the doors to the Nigerian Whoa. prison interrogation hallway. <laughs> and if you put it together, 26 Magen Chai. Kedosh Baruch is watching over your life, don't worry. Hashem is protecting your life. And it's like nonstop things like that throughout our experience of showing like Hashem was with us right. and that we had no fear and we kept strong and stayed true to who we are. Right. But Hashem, after three weeks, our families were able to put pressure on the Nigerian government through uh, different means, the U.S. government, French government. Where's Israel government. in all of this? Uh, they could have done more. I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's and a classic this, story. This doesn't represent uh, the Israel for me, like the people. It represents the current government at that time. Okay. And we eventually get out. We take a flight uh, straight from, uh, you know, like imagine you're in a cell after three weeks with Boko Haram terrorists. And then all of a sudden you're back in, in Israel, you know, and you see colors and you hear noises and you're able to, like, I remember we left the prison. I see the outside, the sun was vibrating. The, the green on the grass was like so colorful. It was a surreal experience because you're deprived from your senses. Wow. And we get brought back to Israel, you know, and, and it's overwhelming. Like we couldn't sleep for the first week and a half, two weeks, because there's just too many things happening that your brain can't rest. It's just and too much. And everyone's been hearing about also, it. Also, but it's just too much. Like I can't fall asleep. I, I don't feel like afraid. I don't feel scared. Like while I was there, I'm, I wasn't afraid. So why would I be afraid when I'm leaving? But I'm not able to fall asleep. You know, it was, it was, it was crazy. Um, but PTSD. eventually... Yeah, we it's can a, say it's a, a, a form of, of PTSD. A form of, but I think the really hard PTSD comes from a lot of if you dealt with the situation in a in a mm. negative way. So like I have friends who went to war, right? And they in the moment couldn't function, were in shock, and then all of a sudden they have those memories and those emotions flooding back. Whereas like for me, I'm proud of like what I went through. You know, I know that we were able to survive and come out of there strong. And so when I have the memories, like yeah, it was very hard. But it's, it made me stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not something that uh, wow. that does that. But each one of us takes it differently because we were three in there. You had um, your positive mindset. Yeah. Your frame of mind protects you. Very important. Whenever, I would say this, if someone can take something away from this, it's two things. Number one, if you're ever in a hard situation, never lose emuna. Always be strong and always act in a way that not only you can survive and maximize your survival, but when you look back in 20 years, you'll be proud of yourself and not ashamed. And number two, the whole reason that I'm even open to sharing this story, because it's something very personal. You know, it's not something that For I sure. want to talk about. It's to bring attention back to the story of the Ebos. Because David said something, he's a journalist uh, in his profession. He said, the number one rule of journalism is when you come to tell the story, not to become the story. And it wasn't our intention, but we became the story. And so with telling our story, I want people to revert back and understand that we were there to tell an even bigger story than ours, P50 million. And this story is a very important part of our next chapter of Jewish history. And there's a reality of suffering that exists there. And we need to bring awareness to that story. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a shame. And uh, 
I know you, you're continuing on in this project. You just went to Uganda and yeah. then and went through different experiences. And Zat Hashem, uh, Hashem bless you always to be, met one, guarded first things first and safe. Uh, but you'll be, be, be matzliach in this mission. I mean, it's, I mean all of us matzliach. Uh, it's not uh, my mission, it's our mission. I thought about what you said last night. Last night we were talking and he's like, Rudy's been uh, influenced by Chabad recently. And Always. I was like, I, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, but yeah. then I said to you, what did I say to you on the phone? I was like, because eh, yeah, he said some things. And then I thought, you have, you've been hanging out Always. with Aaron. Nahon, but yeah. recently you've been hanging out with yeah, Aaron, Aaron a lot too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, and at first I said to him, no, I was like, not know that you're not influenced by them, but like not that like you're like becoming a Chabad and you've just always been around Chabad. Yeah. But uh, then I thought about Aaron and I was like, that is, uh, I saw you were talking in an interview. I was like, he talks like Chabad Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's many Chabad stories that I have uh, throughout the world, of, and it's always been, you know. So I've always we been, got uh, drunk in Times Square. <laughs> we had a lachaim in Times Square. Remember the, the mitzvah tank? <laughs> That's not a representative of Chabad. <laughs> Bro, no, in the middle of the New York, they see they see, uh, the the Chabadnik saw the two of us. Like, come, you want to put it feeling? You want to lachaim? By the way, since you said you became the story, and you went to such a crazy experience, uh, hopefully no one may experience something like that. It's so, even though you had a great mindset, that must have had an effect on you. Did it have an effect on your life? Did, did you feel different? What? Um, I've been through a fair share of uh, traumatic experiences in my life. You know, car accidents that was very mm -hmm. bad uh, when I was five years old. Uh, Anti-Semitism, army. There's a lot of things that you know people have been through. A lot of things that I don't want to talk about. By the way, I don't even mean to say negative positively. Maybe yeah, how you no, feel no, it that's something that that shakes you, yeah. right? And I think that after it happens, you don't automatically realize how it changes you. I think only years later you can look back and For say, sure. "Wow." that moment made me see this or made mm -hmm. me realize that or made me evolve in that way and everything is is from hashem it was meant to happen what we were meant to go through for many reasons one we grew from it we became stronger um and number two so many people learned about the ebos which was the very purpose of going there in the first place you know like probably more so, yeah it probably so, so, amplified everything you're so doing. so many things are connected and are always happening for a reason the goal is to be able to overcome those challenges the tests that are put in front of us and to really learn in order for us to achieve our tikkun individually and collectively Maybe successful in your mission. Man, man. What, uh, what, what, what does Rudy have planned for the next uh, five years, the next ten years? I so I mean, there's a lot of uh, traveling. <laughs> I love to travel, but um, the documentary project in itself, let's just say, for example, there's three seasons at least: Africa, Asia, and. Um, and South America, and so right now we're finishing the Africa one, then we'd go to Asia, then we go to South, South uh, America. But other than that, there's many other things that I'm doing, you know, trying to empower Jewish identity, bringing people back to the roots, narrating the story of Amisal in their international space, trying to unite Israel within the land for us to find a collective mission and vision. We don't. Like, okay, we have the, 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 the vessel of Israel, we have the people, right? You have the driver, you have the vehicle. We know the location is Mashiach, right? But we're not driving. Like we're not actually uniting and actually going there. So I think that our generation has to have this chapter where we actually are able to unite all the different tribes, which there are many that are still missing in the puzzle piece. And we don't right? You know, when, when, you're make, when you're doing a puzzle, if you don't have all the pieces, it's almost impossible to, to do the puzzle. So, you know, we talk a lot about, yeah, first fix things here, then we live there. Uh, the other tribes of Israel are part of the puzzle pieces and we can't fix things here till they come back. So they're part of the process of us being able to fix here. Um, so there are many issues. The way I see it is that 
every person sees different problems, right? Our eyes are a reflection of our soul and every soul feels a different purpose to do a different tikkun in this world. And with time, it might evolve and some people care more about medicine, some people care more about the environment, some people care about economics, about politics, about spirituality. Everyone sees different things because we're all a part of one and we're all supposed to come and fix. And so I see certain problems and I want to use my potential and my time in this lifetime uh, to be able to fix those problems, which is the problems that Amisad faces in my opinion. Is right. that the show? May we, all, uh, may we all be so busy with uh, bringing Amisal back and bringing Mashiach here. Amen, amen. It's very inspiring uh, how much you do and how much. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. Where can uh, people find you? Where can uh, people connect to you? Uh, you can find me in Israel. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you can, uh, on social media, I mean, it's my name, Rudy Rockman, R-U-D-Y-R-O-C-H-M-A-N. On Instagram, it's Rudy underscore Israel because my Hebrew name is Israel. Um, so you can go on Facebook, YouTube, Basically Instagram, you can find Twitter. him and you can check our descriptions below. We're going to be exactly. putting some links there. Uh, we were never lost. If you can contribute, I'm sure traveling the world to spread this light Definitely. and uh, is cost money. So any funds, obviously, it's going towards mitzvah. It's going towards uh, really to unite Hashem and Am Yisrael wherever they may be in the world. Divine and, mission. Uh, Exactly, exactly, a divine mission. So, Bezat Hashem, maybe Matzliach, constantly, constantly. And uh, the schut of the month of Adar, Rosh Adar. Wow. May we do it besimcha. May we do it besimcha. That's, that's the most Adar right? is. Eve do it Hashem besimcha. There's over 90 curses in the Torah that are written, God forbid, not on a person. But the end all, at the end, it says, why would you, a person be cursed with all of these things? Because they didn't serve Hashem with happiness. Mm. You did all the mitzvot. You didn't do it with happiness. That's uh so is that the shame you be besimcha and all of your missions and uh I mean. keep on doing good things brother. Chaim, Chaim. Chaim.